Hi, my name is Magdalena Morsi and welcome to the Breakthrough Podcast. It's a series by Second Home where we meet the most cutting edge and inspiring entrepreneurs and innovators of our day. In this episode, we hear from one of the world's leading psychologists on the conscious mind, Ethan Cross. He's in conversation with journalist Phoebe Lovat. They explore some of the pioneering research in his latest book, Chatter, the voice in our heads and how to harness it. Enjoy. for being here tonight. Um, Yes, I'm Phoebe Lovett. Tonight I'll be in conversation with Ethan Cross, who is um, an award-winning professor of psychology, the director of the University of Michigan's Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. Is that right, Ethan? That's right. Yeah, Yeah, you got it. And the author of the book that we're here today to discuss, Chatter, the Voice in Our Head and How to Harness It. Thank you for being here, um, Ethan. Thanks for having me. Been looking forward to this for, for a while. Yeah, me too. Um, we're going to spend about half an hour discussing the book and some of the ideas in it. And then there will be 15 minutes at the end for Q&A. So for everyone who is watching tonight, please, please um, submit your questions to the Q&A section and we'll make sure we get around to as many of them as possible. Um, so without further ado, Ethan, let's just jump straight in. Um, we were just chatting a little bit before, before the uh, conversation went live it's kind of impossible to discuss a book about internal dialogue and self-talk without acknowledging the fact that, you know, we are living through a moment which has seen us listening to our inner voice more than ever before, sitting with our thoughts in a way we've never had to. And a lot of us have realized over the last 10 months that we don't like a lot of what our inner voice has to say to us. Um, you know, will might be the first time we've been conscious of this internal negative self-talk that you characterize as chatter. And um, we may also have noticed it's become dramatically worse over the last few months of the pandemic as sort of like exhaustion sets in. So if you were writing this book again now, um, would it change the way that you talk about chatter? You know, can you tell us some important things about how we should begin to grapple with our experience of chatter um, in relation to the moment that we're living through? Yeah, I think we're living through, um, you know, the, the chatter event of, of the century. And, and by century, I don't mean the last 20 years. I mean, like the last 100 years. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I turned in the final version of, of the... Me- well, what I thought was the final version of this manuscript for, for the book chatter uh, about a month before COVID, COVID started. And, um, and once it hit, I remember having a conversation with, with my editor and I said, if you had asked me at the start of this project to, to give you the formula for like the biggest chatter event you can imagine, what we're living through right now would be exactly it. A once in a century pandemic economic turmoil, political instability. That's certainly, political instability certainly in the States. I'm pretty sure that applies to the UK. Not sure about all the other countries that are being represented here. Um, mm-hmm. Social discord between different different groups. I mean, there's a lot of tension in the world and a lot of these things are, um, they're uncontrollable and, and what happens next is uncertain. And those two ingredients, uncertainty and uncontrollability, those fuel chatter, this negative side to introspection. And so, so for those of you who are experiencing higher levels of chatter now than you would normally, the first thing I would say is that makes total sense, right? So 
abnormal times call for abnormal reactions. I think we have data showing that chatter is elevated across the board now. The good news is that there are science-based tools that I think people can use to try to help with that chatter. And in fact, much of the book is talking about what those different tools are. So would I have written the book differently if I started it now? Maybe there'd be a few different stories that I would have told. Um, but in terms of the science, the science wouldn't have changed in terms of the, the techniques that, that I review. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. When I got my copy of the book, I jumped straight to the section back that says the tools because I was like, okay, you know, I mean, I've actually practiced meditation for many years, you know, exercise, sleep, whatever, all these things. And, um, you know, some of my my usual sort of self-calming mechanisms have certainly uh, failed me in this moment. Have you... Have you had to dig a bit deeper to like calm your own? I mean, you opened the book talking about this experience that you had. You can tell us a little bit about in your own words where you sort of really had to like address your own chatter internally. But how, how have you dealt with the last 10 months? Have you like really had to dig? Have you had to reread the tools basically? Uh, well, you know, when you work on the book for four years, the tools don't need to be reread. They're burned into my Okay. visual cortex. But, yeah. but one of the ideas that I talk about in the book is that there are no, there are no single magic pills, right? There's no one tool that works for every person in every situation to magically get rid of chatter. Instead, we have lots of different tools that exist. And I think the challenge that readers, listeners, and, and also scientists, the challenge that we now confront is to figure out what are the combinations of tools that work best for you in the particular chatter provoking situations you find yourself in? Mm -hmm. And so this applies to me too, as a scientist who studies this material, I have had to stumble on my own set of three or four tools that, that I use now regularly and that do help. So, so I'll, you know, I'll give you a couple examples. One thing that I do, and I talk about this in chatter is something called temporal distancing. Um, well, you know, before I say tools, maybe we should just, uh, let me give, give like a 60 second overview of chatter and introspection. Cause I think it's helpful. Yeah. So 100%. I was, I, I, it's so hard not to jump straight to it because right I have the appetite for that, but you're absolutely right. Let's rewind a little bit and talk about, you know, cause that was one thing when I read the intros, I was like, where do you draw the line between, of course, we all have our internal voice, our thoughts, you know, you might characterize, how, where, what's the distinction between a healthy thought process and the line where it crosses into a negative chatter experience. Yeah. So the inner voice, the ability to, you know, think in, in, in verbally, which isn't the only kind of thought we have. We also can think in terms of images, but verbal reasoning is an incredible tool and it helps us do a lot of things This inner voice. It helps us um, plan and simulate and problem solve and create. Like I can think about, an hour earlier, I thought, okay, Phoebe's going to interview me. Here's what she's going to say. Here's how I'm going to respond. I could do a simulation. Um, so the inner voice, really, really useful. Mm -hmm. That becomes not so useful is when we experience a problem and then we, we turn our attention inward to try to make sense of that problem, which is what we often do. Like we encounter events that we stumble on. We try to get closure around those experiences and we use language to help us do that. When we experience distress and we zoom in on our problems and then find ourselves getting stuck 
experiencing a negative cycle of thinking and feeling. We worry, we ruminate, we catastrophize. When we do that, as opposed to coming up with clear solutions to the problems we're facing, that's what chatter is about. It's getting stuck in those negative thought loops that uh, lots of science shows can have significant negative effects on how we think and perform on our relationships and on our health. So that's the negative side of things. And it's characterized by this almost tunnel vision on the awfulness of the situation, right? So when you're experiencing chatter about COVID, you are, you're zooming in and thinking about how miserable the situation, I can't see my friends and loved ones. When am I ever going to, I can't travel. My kids, my kids, I'll, I'll reveal to the, to the group here, like, the level of negotiations I've had to do with my six and 10 year olds to make sure that they don't come in while this event is occurring. Like you wouldn't believe because they like to just sit at my foot and work. So like that makes things hard. Right. Um, And so often what we find is really useful when people are experiencing chatter is finding tools to help broaden their perspective so that they can think about the situation they're, they're facing more objectively, right? To take the big picture into account. And so here's, here's one way that I do that with COVID. Um, I do something called temporal distancing. Uh, that's psychological jargon. The, the way I like to um, describe that to others is just mental time travel. So I'll think about frequently when I find myself getting stuck, ruminating about what I'm going through, I'll think about, well, 18 months from now, these are the different trips I'm taking. And I'll, I'll go over those different trips and um, or, you know, maybe it's not 18 months, maybe it's 12 months, that window of time that I have to travel to where I could realistically imagine traveling changes depending on where we are with, with our vaccine supply. But what that mental exercise does is something that for me is powerful. It makes it clear that what I'm going through right now, as awful as it is, and it is awful, it's temporary. It will eventually end and life will return to normal. And that gives me hope. And we know, again, from lots of science that having hope can be a really powerful experience for alleviating chatter. So I'll go forward in time. I'll also go backwards in time to try to put my experience in perspective. So I frequently think about the last great pandemic we experienced in 1918. And, and, as awful as this one is right now, that was equally, if not worse, right? We couldn't do these sorts of things in 1918. We couldn't have uh, a, an international event like this. We couldn't get food delivery like I think many of us can, right? Mm-hmm. And I think back to that pandemic and I, and I think, well, that, that was really terrible, but guess what? We got through it. And we'll get through this one too. So those little shifts, that doesn't make me blissfully happy. And it doesn't lead me to deny what I'm feeling right now, but it makes it a lot more tolerable. And it it turns down the volume on the chatter. And so that's just one tool that I use. Um, I'll often, I'll also uh, make use of nature. Nature can be a powerful boom to your inner voice, your po- the positive side of it. I talk to particular people um, who are skilled at not getting me to just ruminate about everything, but to broaden my perspective. So I, I do a few different things. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you about, you know, obviously there's kind of like this idea in our culture that it's always good to talk. It's, you know, 
it's really good to vent, to get it out. Um, obviously, there's a big tradition of sort of talk therapy in the West. And it was interesting to read the part of your book where you wrote about how like science shows that actually it's not always that beneficial to talk about what's going on internally. I mean, can you speak a little bit more on that? Like, how do you distinguish between when it's a healthy sort of like sharing cathartic experience and when actually you're just making it worse for yourself? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So other people, um, so I think of the, the tools that exist for managing chatter, I think of them as falling into three buckets. Things you could do on your own, like perspective shifts that you can engage in. There are like 10 or so different neat things that one can do. And I just described one with mental time travel. Then there's a bucket about how we can interact with our physical spaces. And maybe we'll talk about that later. But the yeah. third bucket consists of other people. Other people in our lives can be either a force of good or bad when it comes to our chatter. So other people can either amplify the chatter or, or um, make it better. Right. And the key is to know who to talk to and what kinds of conversations to have. And so one popular belief that doesn't have a whole lot of data and science behind it is one that is still very prevalent. This idea that venting, when you're experiencing chatter, get it out, unload, dump it, vent your emotions to just cathect, right? Um, there's been a lot of research on, on, on venting over the past several decades. And consistently what scientists find is that when you vent about an experience to another person, that makes you feel closer and more connected to the person you're talking about. So Phoebe, you know, if I call you up and I, I, I just got to tell you about this and I just unload and you respond, really? T tell me again exactly what they said. I can't believe it. How did you feel? So when you keep doing that, that makes me feel closer to you because I know you care enough about me to listen. But if you think about what happens when you're just asking me more and more questions about my feelings, mm. it's kind of like you're throwing logs on the flame. You're, you're, you're kindling the fire because you're getting me to relive those emotions over and over again. What you ideally want to have happen in a conversation designed to reduce chatter is two things. First, you want to talk about your emotions to some degree. So you want to be able to express yourself. Talking is good. But once you know enough about what the person is feeling and experiencing, you want to try to help broaden their perspective. Other people are often in, in an ideal position to do that because the problems that they're often confronted with, they're not happening to the other person. So, so I often ask, if we were all together right now, I'd ask the audience, like, have you ever been in a situation where a friend or a loved one comes to you with a problem? They're experiencing chatter. They don't know what to do. And it's easy for you to offer them advice. And most people raise their hand and say, yeah. 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 So that, that, that's a basic feature of like the human condition. If it's not happening to us, it's a whole lot easier for us to advise someone else. And so, but that advice giving piece of social exchanges, it sometimes gets lost when mm. we talk to other people about our problems. They think that the way to be a good friend is to just hear us out, not to also help shift our perspective. And, and that, that sometimes leads uh, our chatter to be maintained because we're not changing the way we think about the problem in a way that gives us closure. Right. Um, yeah. So, so you'd advise maybe just having, just being highly conscious of like 
talking maybe just to your problem solving friends rather than people who just want to kind of revel in the, in yeah. the, in the drama with you. I, I'm extremely deliberate about who I, who I turn to, to talk about my chatter. Yeah. I don't want to give, I don't want to give listeners or people who hear the impression that I'm chatter, chatter, chatter all the time, by the way, <laughs> um, we're talking so much about my own. Um, when chatter does hit for me, which I think it does for, for most of us, I think really carefully about who I should chat about it with. There are some people in my life who I, I love dearly and I know they love me and I do not talk to them because I know it's just going to be a vent session, a co-rumination fest just that's going to lead me just feeling bad. And so I turn to others and, um, uh, sure. and they help. It was, I really liked reading about your dad in the introduction to the book. You sound like a really um, interesting character, like a lot of kind of different. And you, you say that he kind of, when you were a child, he was always asking, telling you, like, look inside yourself for answers. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess that's a great, like, early learning on sort of how to not necessarily always seek other people's insight. But you did say that you don't use that approach with your own children. I guess one of, you know, as well as managing our own anxiety and internal dialogue, I, I'm personally uh, not a parent, but many of my friends do have children and, and their children are anxious right now. Do you have, how do you speak to your children about sort of like managing their own chatter in, in this moment? Well, you know, one thing that, um, one, one idea that I think psychologists and cognitive scientists and people who study the mind and brain take for granted that not everyone else um, always recognizes is the fact that our thoughts don't have to control how we feel. You know, the idea that you have age, we have agency as humans, and this is what part of what makes us human beings so unique is that we have the capacity to change the way how we think, which can change the way we feel. And with my daughters who are six and 10, what I've, what I've noticed is that that idea is not something that is, uh, is intuitive for them. So, I, so when they're having a fit, like, you know, they're experiencing major, major chatter. The, the youngest is experiencing the major chatter because like the piece of chocolate that she got for dessert is a gram lighter than the piece of chocolate that her sister got. I mean, these are major events for six-year-olds. It's grounds for a meltdown. Big time, right? So, yeah. so explaining to her, you don't have to feel this way. That, I mean, and, and just teaching her about the mind and how it works. I've, I found that to be useful with my kids. And in fact, um, we actually have a large project where we're, we've developed a curriculum to teach high school kids about how the mind works when it comes to emotion management and self-control. Mm -hmm. And the whole premise behind this project is, well, let me back up. So what we've done in this project is we've taken what we know about the science of, of emotion management, a lot of the work that I talk about in Chatter, mm -hmm. but other material too. We've taken that and we've translated it, working with teachers into lesson plans, a curriculum, so that we can teach students about the mind and how it works in this way. And the idea is that simply knowing how the mind works can be empowering, right? And so we're, we're doing studies now to see if that is indeed true. So once you go through the curriculum, 
are you able to use some of the knowledge you gain to profitably improve yourself uh, later on in life? And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy that we're not, that children aren't taught sort of like even the basics of, of controlling your inner self-talk because it, you know, as you document throughout the book in myriad ways, it can literally affect the entire outcome of your life. You know, the, the way where the, the, your ability to harness or not harness your internal dialogue can shape your, the entire trajectory of your life. And like one thing that I really, um, you know, kind of gave me chills actually reading was like the power of the mind body connection with the impact that like negative talk can have on your, on your actual physical body to the extent that if you get stuck into very negative self-talk spirals for excessive amounts of time it's like your body reacts as if you're under um like immediate physical threat like in terms of the stress response which is obviously very dangerous for you in the long term when it builds up in a chronic way can you speak a little bit more about that yeah well there's so much to unpack there that that is near and dear to my heart um so let me address the physical bit and then we'll back up and and i want to mention um say something else about the teaching bit and the importance of this material So um, we're running, our time is going so quick. This is is like way too much to talk about. So, um, so so I want to be really clear with people. uh, Experiencing stress itself is not a bad thing. A stress reaction, negativity in small doses is really good. Like the ability to, to experience a pang of anxiety Bef- is, is, is functional according to lots of science, right? Like if I'm thinking about, oh, I have a really high stakes project I need to complete, having a ping of anxiety a week before that mobilizes me to do the work necessary to perform well there. So negative emotions can be useful. When negative emotions and when stress becomes harmful is when we experience those emotions and that biological response, and then it remains chronically activated over time. Mm-hmm that's when we experience, we're, that's what we're not designed for. We're not designed to experience stress, stress all the time. That exerts a significant wear and tear on the body that predicts a host of physical diseases, things like cardiovascular disease, certain forms of cancer and so forth. And, the, and chatter is one of the culprits that help perpetuate that chron- those chronic stress reactions because we are so the mind is capable of creating our own stress response and then perpetuating it. Cause I can be rejected by an editor or a colleague or my children. And rather than just experience that event and move on, I'm capable of reliving and re-experience that rejection over and over and over and over again. And that's how it gets under the skin. And even as I talk a little bit about in the book, can even influence the way our genes are expressed. And so it, it really is the mind and the body are super tightly connected. Um, so, 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 well, that there's so much I want to ask. I you. forgot what else I wanted to say. No, I know. I know. I was like, and I'm like trying to jump with my next question. I mean, do you mind if I ask you another question? No, no, go for it. There is one that I, I mean, you know, being a millennial, this is one that maybe is like particularly relevant to my age group and people below me, but kind of the role of social media, I think particularly 
um, we were, I was saying like, I feel like there's a lot of pressure to present as being super pe peaceful and, you know, having very much harnessed your inner dialogue and being, you know, what I call toxic positivity. And I just, you, you do write in the book about sort of social media and like how it's not necessarily always a negative thing, but, um, we were saying, you know, you were saying you think it's really important to stress that like it, it's very normal to experience negative self-talk. And and I think that that's something that people can benefit from hearing, especially right now, because I think a lot of people are suffering in silos and comparing themselves to other people online who yeah. seem to be doing great in the pandemic. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've been researching, we've, we've been doing research on social media and well-being for about 10 years in my lab. And um Social media is really interesting when it comes to the inner voice, because in many ways, I think it provides us with a giant megaphone for broadcasting what's streaming through our heads. And if you actually think about Facebook, the prompt it, at one point, I think this is still true. It said, what's on your mind? So it's beckoning us to share what's happening in our head. Mm -hmm. um, people here have probably heard a lot of, a lot of press, which suggests social media is toxic, stay away. Other arguments say it's really good. Uh, my, my opinion on this is it's not de facto good or bad. It depends on how you navigate it. And um, it's much like the, the, the physical world in the sense that social media provides us with a new environment to, to play around in. And how we play around in that environment will impact how we feel. And so if you think about the physical world, uh, if I go into the wrong neighborhoods and talk to the wrong people, I'm going to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, I have, I seek out other kinds of experiences in the physical world, they can be the source of enormous joy and meaning. Now, what's different about physical and, and social media is that from, from the time we're born, we're socialized. We learn our parents, our, our friends, our caretakers, they're teaching us how to navigate this world to our betterment, right? We, we, I learned, don't go here, go here. This is how you talk to someone. This is not how you talk to someone. We learned those rules. Those were rules that have been um, curated over time, passed down from one generation and through our culture, they're transmitted to us. Social media has only been around for what, 15 years? Mm -hmm. And we haven't quite had the time to be socialized into how to use it, right? The science is only beginning to now be able to tell us if you interact this way, this can be bad for you and, and this other way can be useful. And so in the book, I try to articulate a little bit about what we've learned. So, you know, try to stay away from passively just taking in the curated news feeds of other people because, you know, if you just see how awesome their, their worlds are and you know full well how mediocre your life is right now, that's not going to make you feel so great. But yeah. on the other hand, you might want to use social media to seek out and provide support for others that could be really useful in that regard. So I think it's a fascinating space. Yeah, I'm very much in development. Um, I wanted to ask one super, just round out my section, one super quick question, and then we'll get to the Q&A. Just to touch on, because I know we want to discuss it a little bit, like, the impact of physical environment, obviously we're all living in very contained waters right now. Um, people have varying degrees of access to nature. I'm right in the middle of London. So, you know, there's, uh, it's pretty intense here. So do you have any just final um, words of advice on how people can sort of like use their physical environment to the best effect right now for their, for their internal chatter? 
Yeah. So I'll give you the, I'll give you the shorthand note on this. So um, (laughs) enhance your exposure to green spaces. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of great data showing that uh, green space exposure. And what I mean by that is, you know, trees and greenery and plants that can help uh, rejuvenate uh, the, the attention that is often sapped by chatter. Like for we, we can only focus so much at any given moment in time. And if all of that focus is on our chatter, that doesn't leave much over to like do other things like our work or have engaging conversations. So, um, so enhance your exposure to green spaces can help with that. Uh, try to create order in your environment. When we're experiencing chatter, we often feel like we're not in control of our mind. It, it's disordered, it's, it's chaotic. And what we've learned is we can compensate for that experience by turning to our environment and 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 tidying up and placing things in order. Uh, I'm not the most organized guy. Uh, usually I'm kind of free with things. Uh, my, my office doesn't usually look like this, but when I was writing the book, I'd find myself doing weird things when I was stressed out. Like I go to the kitchen and clean all the pots and pans and put them together very neatly. And that yeah. helped, right? And yeah. so it's another thing you can do. And the final bit on the environment is Seek out awe-inspiring experiences. So awe, the emotion, right, is, is something we feel when we're in the presence of something vast that we can't explain. So, you know, the number of stars in the sky, like billions of stars, how I have trouble computing what that means. Or, um, you know, I'm still awestruck by planes. You know, I, I think like at one point we were, we were futzing around with sticks, really struggling hard to create fires. And, you know, now we figured out how to blast people off in tin cans and land them safely. Like, how did we do that? That elicits awe. And what we know is that when people experience awe, when they're in the presence of something vast and indescribable, that makes them and their own concerns feel a whole lot smaller by comparison. And feeling smaller may not be something we always aspire to, but shrinking our chatter and having our chatter seem smaller, that can be really useful. So those are, are, are three environmental tips that uh, I, I elaborate on in the book. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm going to jump over to some of the questions that have come in just because um, we've had so many and I wish we could answer all of them because they're actually great questions. I'm actually going to do one that was one, was on my list, which I didn't get around to. Um, sort of someone says interesting about mental time travel I would ask how this fits in with mindfulness it seems like it runs contrary to it I have to say I was quite surprised um to not you know I was expecting there to be a massive section on mindfulness and meditation to be totally frank because that's obviously a, a very popular um way of approaching anxiety and depression and other internal issues right now. So can I ask why, why that isn't touched on so much in, in your book? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, mindfulness and meditation are great. And, and, and if you, if you read chatter, you'll see that I've actually a personal experience of this. I, I, I got a mantra when I was five years old, I wanted a bicycle or for my birthday, but I got a mantra instead for my dad, who was a, an interesting character as you That's were very cool. Um, so, you know, the premise of, of, of many mindfulness practices is for us to uh, recalibrate ourselves and, and focus on the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be great. Um, but to a certain extent, it's working against the machine. We can't always be in the moment. In fact, 
one of the features that makes human beings unique is we've evolved the capacity to not be in the moment. So we spend between one third and one half of our waking hours not focused on the moment. We lost in thought about the past and the future. And, and this is something that I think is not de facto bad. I would not want to give up my ability to travel in time, right? I, the ability to travel back in time, I can learn from my mistakes. To think about the future, that helps me plan. It helps me fantasize. I can savor experiences. All of those mental time-traveling gymnastics, like that makes life worth living to me to a certain degree. And so really what the book deals with is how can you travel forward and back in time without getting stuck in rumination and anxiety and chatter, right? And, and I try to make the point that the only solution is not refocusing on the present, that there are other ways of managing those chatter experiences that don't involve um, meditation. Right, okay. That's very interesting. Um, someone else says, do you have any tips on how to start your day with positive or at least neutral chatter? My chatter often kicks off with a negative inflection for the day before I'm even consciously engaged with it. Yeah, so one thing you might wanna do is, is some, we haven't talked about distant self-talk. So try to coach yourself through a problem, talking to yourself like you would a friend and actually use your own name to do it as, as wacky as that sounds, um, do that silently. but. Uh, as I mentioned before, one of the things we know is that it's much easier to advise other people on their problems than it is to take our own advice. Mm. And what we've learned is that language can provide us with a route, a tool for, uh, for rerouting our internal dialogues and making them more coach-like. And it involves using your own name to talk to yourself. So, all right, come on, Ethan. What are we going to do today? How are we going to approach the situation? That, that switches you into a more coach-like as opposed to critic mode that can often be useful. And it's pretty easy to do. Yeah, I, I find that um, if I write out my whatever's in my head in the morning, kind of in a third person type of way, I really make my exposing my, <laughs> my own inner struggles right now. But I find that if I can do that and see it in black and white, it gives me a distance from it. Yeah. And um, it really, and also just getting it down on paper, the act of like having to write out the problem already in the writing, you kind of start to formulate the solution or at least like the counter thought um, to do, do you journal? Do you, what, what are your like go-to chatter techniques? I know you talked about the temporal distancing. But... Uh, I use distant self-talk. I use temporal distancing. I lean on my, um, my chatter advisors, so to speak, I've got a whole network of them that I tap regularly. And also I provide services back to them. I'm a big fan of uh, enhancing my exposure to green spaces. I often, I also talk in the book about rituals and um, I have a couple of personal rituals that I engage in too. Um, and rituals can be really useful for, for chatter um, if not taken to an extreme. So journaling is something that um, I write about in the book. Uh, there's a lot of data showing that journaling can be really useful for helping people manage chatter. And it does have a distancing component because when you're writing about yourself, you're becoming the character in a story. And, you know, a character is someone that's separate from, from you. And so um, I don't personally do journaling a whole lot, but there's a lot of, but that's part of this idea that different tools work for different people in different situations. And so. 
Um, so kind of, I'm going to kind of merge two questions here, but, but I think maybe people are slightly struggling with the, like you understand the concept of the, the distance self-talk and whatnot. Someone says, saying something different as a start, how do you help shift the mind to actually believing the new internal dialogue? Like if you're having very persistent um, negative internal dialogue and you're trying techniques, like what in your experiences is, is the key to sort of making the shift in the mental rumination change? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. Um, all the questions have been great uh, <laughs> before. <laughs> um, I think what this taps into is the idea that easier said than done, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so um, most people, I think, who are experiencing chatter, they, they know they, they want to feel better, right? So they're, they're trying to do stuff to feel better. They know that it's better to have a more positive orientation, a less critical one, but they have trouble actualizing that change, bringing it about. And that's where the concept of, of distancing we think is useful. And there are lots of different ways you can do it. What distancing helps us do is step back and gain a little bit of objectivity to the situation. And once we step back and have a clearer view of the situation, then it becomes possible to follow through with our goals. And our goals in many cases are to not experience chatter and to feel better and to work through an experience. So let me make this concrete. So if I'm, if I'm kind of anxious about, um, you know, uh, what, a, what an editor is going to say about a scientific paper. And I can't, I can't, you know, oh my God, what if they say it's awful? They rejected years of work and I get stuck in that thought loop. Like I don't want to be there, but I'm stuck. When I step back and I broaden my perspective, I realize, hold on a second, Ethan, you've written hundreds of papers before. Many of them have been rejected many times before they've been published. It's part of the game they'll probably say something negative and then you'll respond. And you, so that zooming out a bit gives us access to different kinds of information that are convincing, that help us reason through the problem more effectively. Mm -hmm. For sure. This is an interesting question. How does your conscious chatter work with your unconscious, I guess your subconscious um, thinking? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, boy. You know, it's funny. I sometimes, so just as an, this, I promise you, I'm not dodging the question. I, I will get back to it, but um, these are fun because, you know, for the past 15 years or so, I'm the one on dissertation committees that I'm, I'm peppering students, you know, with, with hard questions before they defend their dissertation and get their PhD. And I, 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 I feel now the role reversal. It's like, it's karma. Now I'm getting all the tough questions. Um, the subconscious and conscious and how those um, interact remain a mystery. I wish I could tell you I knew exactly how it all worked. Uh, we don't yet know from a scientific point of view. We do know, uh, and I spent a little bit of time talking about this, that our, our, our waking mind communicates with our, our sleeping and dreaming mind. So it's not uncommon to see our chatter manifest in our dreams, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, but, but how exactly that works, we don't know. Now, we do know that if you can help people with their chatter, that that makes it easier to sleep better and, 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 and reduces some of the negative subconscious consequences that we often see. But in terms of the dynamics and the architecture behind all that, there's a lot more science that needs to be done. Mm, I'm sure. Um, 
yeah, the mind seems to be a complete mystery still. Um, well, that's good. I mean, there's still like <laughs> room, room to explore. hundred percent. So I just wanted to ask you one uh, more question I've been sent through, um, which I think is interesting. Many people have started to view proper, ther proper therapy as in psychotherapy, I assume, as a way to cope with the current climate um, Someone asked if you've ever had therapy yourself. You don't, you don't have to answer that if you don't want to. But I, I wonder, um, you know, obviously, uh, I would imagine, I, I don't want to make blanket assumptions, but that the, our, the way that we approach problems and think and try and deal with internal chatter must be shaped by, in some, to some extent by um, experiences we had in childhood, you know, in the same way that like our patterns is, you know, when you go to therapy, it's all about unpacking your childhood. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, is there a point where you would say that internal, you know, on a good day, I can do these things that you're talking about, but I can't lie. I have days where I can't pull myself out of it. Um, and do you think that there's a line where maybe therapy is, is going to need, is going to need to be necessary or. Yeah, or any absolutely. Um, so, you know, I wrote this book um, targeted towards helping people deal with problems of living, which are, characteristic of all of us, right? And the kind of chatter that just accompanies stumbling through the world. Now, can that chatter morph into more extreme forms of, of clinical forms of anxiety and depression? Absolutely, we see evidence of that. And in those cases, if you find yourself struggling in ways that are paralyzing and that are really interfering with your ability to live well on a consistent basis, then I advocate going for therapy. And I think you absolutely should. The kinds of interventions that are often administered in therapy, um, they share some overlap with some of the techniques I talk about, but they're more intensive. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes that more intensive form of intervention can be really useful. Um, someone asked if I've been in therapy, I haven't personally, but I totally endorse it. I refer people all the time. And I think it serves a great good. Um, with respect to childhood, uh, you know, there are different views on, on what the best ways of intervening are uh, therapeutically. Uh, some forms of therapy go back into childhood more than others. Uh, many, many, many empirically based therapies that are popular nowadays don't actually by default, spend a ton of time in the past. They deal more with the problems you're experiencing right now. Um, so, you know, our, our, our past experiences, we certainly imprint to some degree. I, whenever I say imprint, I feel like that um, dark vampire movie with uh, the Harry Potter guy. What was that called? Do you remember the reference? Um, Twilight, the Twilight series. Twilight. I don't know if that was popular over in the UK, but um, yeah, our parents shape our inner voice, but there's a lot of other experiences that also impact it too, as we, we navigate our lives. And so, um, so there's a lot of malleability to it. Mm -hmm. Oh, I really want to keep asking you questions. Maybe I'll ask you one really quick last one and then we'll round it out. Um, okay. For anyone who's sort of like uh, chatter has got to a point of where it feels like a sort of paralysis where you can't move forward and can't decipher what's like what's the first step that you take um you know in terms of breaking down that like if the internal chatter has got to a point of just like noise and you can't you're just feeling stuck on how to act um well i think there there's so you know the question is is it getting to a point where 
it's interfering with your ability to live well um, consistently over time for several, like for two weeks, right? I think if it gets to that point, then you want to seek out some therapeutic help. Um, mm-hmm. If it's just really loud for, uh, you know, um, whatever, a day or two, I mean, I think you want to try uh, implementing the d- different tools that, that I talk about. I mean, um, for me, I could tell you that talking to someone out, talking to the right people is often really, really helpful when the amplitude of the chatter gets really, really high. Um, I like, you know, talking to other people and, and, and getting some mental space by getting out of the house and, and clearing my head in the woods. Like that, that for me is, is particularly effective. And if you have people to turn to, you know, there's no harm in, in trying that, yeah. uh, you know, with all of these tools, I think if they don't work, don't use them, right. Give them a shot, right. Like it's like an exercise at the gym. Some exercises are going to be really, you're going to enjoy them. It's going to make you stronger. Others you might not like as much. And, you know, for, yeah. for me, journaling, nothing against journaling, but it's not my thing. Like right. but it's a lot of great data behind it. Yeah, as you say, it's about figuring out the kind of set of tools that really works for you. And um, excuse, this is a galley copy, so <laughs> the actual book is more beautiful than this. But um, what's great is that, you know, you really do at the back of the book just have this very concise breakdown of all the tools. And I'm sure if you spent a few days like running through all of them, you'd feel better by the end of it. Or at least you'd have a conscious, a good idea of where you were stuck and where you where in your life you really needed to make some changes. So thank you so much, Ethan, for um, taking the time to, to go through the book with us. It is a brilliant book. It's very digestible, which is, I think with all of us like very overwhelmed right now, so much information, so much uncertainty. It's nice to read a book that's like very clear and and super comprehensive so thank you ethan um thank you so much for taking the time thank you to everyone who who watched thank you to second home for hosting us and um i hope everyone is able to calm the inner noise a little bit after today's talk yeah well thanks for having me and thanks everyone for coming it was really really great deal of fun and hopefully yeah. next time we get to see see each other in person one day <laughs> all right thanks a lot take care everyone take care. This episode was brought to you as part of our Breakthrough Podcast series. Subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what events we have coming up. I'm Magdalena Morsi and I'll see you next time.